You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. If you open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10, uh, Mark chapter 10, and I'll be reading verses 35 through 45, Mark 10 and verses 35 through 45. Uh, And please, if you are able, stand with me for the reading of this passage. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. You may be seated. In honor of Dartmouth College's 250th anniversary, uh, which is marked in 2019, uh, they begun this industrious campaign called To Serve. In other words, they want to encourage alumni, friends, family, Uh, that this coming year, to commit time to volunteer service. Their goal would be that at the end of the year, they'll have 250,000 hours of volunteer service all over the world. In other words, roughly 28 and a half years of labor, all taking place in a small block of time as people give themselves to their communities and other organizations. But it brings up the question, why is serving others right? Why is it a good thing? I think of many of us in our workplaces, look at the paper, calendar events, you realize it's sort of trendy right now to do community service. Any business organization seems to want to say, well, we need to give back to the community. But I want us to think about why is it right to serve? And especially, Why would it be right and profitable for Christians to understand the concept of serving? In other words, in that umbrella of what does it mean to be devoted to doing good, we should include in that that we understand the importance and place of serving. And so that brings us to this interesting passage in in Mark chapter 10, Uh, which is paralleled in the Gospel of Matthew as well. Uh, But here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has just informed in the verses prior to verse 35, 
He has just informed his disciples for the third time in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Mark here that he is going to Jerusalem and he will be killed there. Each time he has told them this, it's followed immediately by the disciples among themselves jockeying for position and prestige within the kingdom of God. And Jesus will have to give them some corrective instruction after each of these times because they react the same way. The question of what does it mean to serve comes up. So what we're going to be doing is looking at this particular scene from two different perspectives. In other words, what it picture does it present of a negative view of what it means to serve? And then what picture is presented of a positive perspective of what it means to serve? One is to be avoided and guarded against. The other is to be embraced and be our passion as followers of Christ. So let's take a look at how this begins. And we'll begin with the, the negative side of service. What is it that we should avoid and be on guard against? And it's simply self-centered service. And I think the scary and disturbing thing in this scene is it, it's self-centered service done in the name of God. That there is a spiritual component that wraps around this, but as you'll see, it's service that is not what Christ demands or delights in. So look at me at verse 35, and you have the, the interesting statement and request of James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, James and John are the sons of Zebedee. They're called the sons of thunder, uh, somewhat of an impulsive uh, aspect of their personalities we see reflected in the Gospels. But, but they're a pair of brothers who, along with uh, Peter and Andrew, are the, the very earliest disciples called. Uh, they're also two of the three that make up that group of three that are extremely close and tight with Christ, Peter, James, and John. So you have the two of them, James and John, and think of opening this conversation with this lead-in. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now, for any of you who've raised children or think of someone in the workplace, if they came to you and said, look, I, I want to ask you something, but you got to promise me you'll do it. Before I even ask you what it is, got to promise me you'll do it. I'm guessing all of us are going to be like, not going there. You know, you're, you're going to have to tell me because this sounds like you're setting me up for something. I want you to just keep in mind that I said this was the third time in Mark where Jesus has just said, we're heading to Jerusalem and I'm, I'm going to be killed there. So this is in the, the last year of his ministry. But this is the third time. I want you to take you to Mark chapter 8. And the second time Jesus had told them he was going to die. If you look at Mark 8, this may give us a little bit of background as to why James and John led with the statement, uh, we're going to ask that you do what we ask you. So in Mark chapter 8, in verses 31 through 33, um, in, in this scene, Jesus 
predicts his death. But, but notice what happens beginning at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, you can't help but feel that this little interaction was in their minds when they're thinking, same sort of scene, Jesus has told us he's going to die. Uh, we already remember what happened to Peter. So, so how can we bring up this subject again but not find ourselves maybe at the tail end of such a sharp rebuke that Peter received. I mean, there's no way to read Mark 8 without realizing that is, that is the harshest rebuke of any of the disciples in Scripture. So let's go back to Mark chapter 10 and now look at their exact request. So you have the lead-in to it, but we really haven't gotten at their request. So in Mark 10, verse 37, after Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Then they come out with their straightforward response. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And I want you to think for a moment, what is it they're, they're truly asking here? Now, now, Matthew's account gives us one other perspective, Matthew puts the mother as being the initiator of this question. And Mark gives us coming off the lips of the two boys, James and John. And I think there's no contradiction there. We can assume this is a, a qualified, maybe the mother led, and then these two kind of pick up and qualify this. But, but their request is quite interesting. Remember, thinking what happened to Peter, Peter's not even a part of this discussion. Now it's, what, what about us? Uh, and what there seems to be asking is, we want a position with you in glory. And, and not just any position. Um, we'll give you center stage. You're, you're Jesus. You, you deserve to be in the center. But, but how about one of us being on the right and one of us being on your left? Now, it is clear that Jesus has said some things that might begin to cause the apostles to wonder, will they have a unique role in God's kingdom? Because he talked to them about 12 thrones and there's 12 of them. Uh, but in this case, they seem to be, for whatever motives, looking at this from somewhat of a self-centered perspective. And so they simply say, we'll, we'll give you your place in that kingdom, but, but we, would, we would like to share in that glory. So just either side. You know, we can assume probably because of the way the wording is always James and John. James is possibly the older. Uh, so yeah, give James maybe the seat on the right, a little more prestigious, and John will settle certainly for the seat on the left. So you notice in this scene that as we're looking at this, self-centered service is in a sense just as bad as not serving at all. And these are the disciples that are having this discussion. Right on the heels of Jesus saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. 
I'm, I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be brutally beaten, crucified, and they're jockeying here for position. What, what's going to happen to us? What about our service for you? And so right away you begin to sense any time we start to think, well, God, I've done this. What are you going to do for me? We have crossed into self-centered service. We're, we're doing it for something that we get back, that we get in return. Notice verse 41 kind of opens up the problem even more because we might read this and say, well, what is wrong with James and John? You know, can't they see that they should be wanting to, to serve Christ out of love and, and they should just be thankful that he's called them, that they're in Christ? But now the mirror is sort of taken and flipped around. What about the other 10 who, who weren't there in this conversation? And so you note in verse 41, we read, uh, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now the word indignant means deeply afflicted and irritated. Now I want you to just think for a moment, why would they be so upset? Maybe, maybe this is a good thing. They're looking at this saying, oh, this is, this is just sinful. And, and we should be against sin and hate sin just like Christ. Well, hold that thought for a minute and look now at verses 39 or 38 and 39. Because when, when Jesus responds to this request to be on the left and the right, notice that you have within the disciples, like many of us, sometimes very selective hearing. Because Jesus responds, and you notice in verse 38, he says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Now, clearly, as we'll see, Jesus is, is both relating this to them, but also saying there's something here you can never do. And it's going to be unique to what I do. But, but they don't catch this. Their, their affirmation and confidence is, we, we can do this. You know, we're, we're here to serve you. Uh, and what we're asking is simply give us the seat on the right and the left. But now we move to the response of the other 10. And so I ask you, what may have motivated the other disciples here to be irritated and indignant? From our glimpse, they were much like us. We know in some of these encounters where Jesus said, I'm going to die, they, they all began to argue and dispute. Not, not just James and John, not just Peter. They, they all kind of started to say, well, basically, where, where's my place now? Uh, am I going to move up in rank and position? So I think as you assess this situation, possibly we could argue the reason they're indignant is they feel very much excluded. I mean, James and John have asked about two seats. What about, what about them? You know, where does this leave them in this request? But I think we could also maybe consider, is it possible that they were irritated because James and John beat them to what they would have liked to ask? 
human nature, even among the disciples, is still sinful. That it's very challenging for us to serve self-sacrificially. That our service, sadly, is many times self-centered. And even in this big campaign Dartmouth is doing, and the appeal has nothing to do with your relationship with God, obviously, but I think many people will serve and get engaged. Why? Because it, it makes you feel good. It feels like you're giving something back. Now, when you think about that, that's all self-centered motivation and drive. Is that what should drive us as servants? Clearly in this scene, Jesus is, is diagnosing this problem that, that is evident among his own disciples then because of how they've responded each time he's told them he's going to have to suffer and die. Uh, go back with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, where this is not the first time that Jesus has talked to his disciples about what service and obedience should look like. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 7, very interesting, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. So given very early in Christ's ministry, so contrast that with Mark 10 is in the last year of Christ's ministry and in the last months of Christ's life. Here in Matthew chapter 7, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the early part of Christ's ministry. And primarily this is directed to his disciples. So if you look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Now, the thing that should pique our attention here is he's saying this primarily to his disciples. Don't think just because you did certain things that if your heart was not where it should be and not motivated by love for me, then these have been worthless and meaningless. So self-centered service is also brought up in Matthew 6 where Jesus compares his disciples and says, basically, don't be like the Pharisees. When they pray, what is their goal? They want to be seen. They, they want the prestige. They want the honor up front. When they fast, what do the Pharisees do? They, they want to look miserable so, so they'll get the attention of others. And when they give money, what do they want? They want people to watch them. That it's a show for them. Don't be like that. In other words, don't be serving from a self-centered, a selfish perspective. Now, that's a challenge for us. Why? Because we're sinful. That we do nothing different than the disciples where we start to jockey for our position sometimes, our place in the church, the, the response we might receive or don't receive when we have done something. For someone else. So there's the perspective on a service that we are to avoid and be alert to, self-centered service. 
But as always in scripture, we're not just given, well, here's what you should not do, but then contrast that with, here's what service should look like. And so now we shift to the sacrificial service of Jesus Christ. Here's the reason why as a follower of Christ, you should serve humbly and out of love for God. And so direct your attention now back to Mark chapter 10. And looking at verse 36, Jesus again responds to them and says, what do you want me to do? Now, that's an interesting question because it's going to come up again shortly after this. So if you're looking in Mark chapter 10, you'll notice verse 46, a scene that happens after this, they come upon this blind beggar Bartimaeus. And, and Jesus heals him, but before Jesus heals him, notice in verse 51, he asks the same question of Bartimaeus. And what's interesting is that Bartimaeus responds and says, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. Now, you can't help but always consider the context of Scripture. Imagine James and John had just had this in conversation with Jesus where they said to him, we want you to do whatever we say. And Jesus says, what do you want? And their request is seen as very self-centered. Now, on the flip side of that, here's this man who's blind, and yet his response shows greater clarity and insight into who Jesus is when he simply says, I, I just want to see. And his confidence is, you are the one who is able to make me see. What, what a contrast there between disciples who have sight but completely miss what they should have seen to hear one who is blind, but yet by God's grace actually sees more clearly than the disciples. But what does sacrificial service look like? Well, again, go to verse 38 of Mark chapter 10. And you have, as an example here, the humility of Jesus Christ. First is humility in just how he responds to the disciples' request. I mean, put yourself in your shoes. You, you, this is the third time you've talked about your impending death. And they've completely argued among themselves. And yet Jesus doesn't say, I've already said this twice to you. What, what's wrong with you? You know, or doesn't simply dismiss them and says, James, John, back of the line. Forget it. You'll be lucky if you get anywhere in my presence. But he responds in humility and grace. He actually gives them an opportunity. Do you want to think about what you're going to ask me here? Go ahead. What, what is it you want to know? What, what a picture of Christ's grace and interaction, not just with his disciples then, but even with each of us. And as he says to them in verse 38 about you, you don't understand, you know, drinking the cup that I'm going to drink, being baptized with the baptism I am going to have. But typically in the Old Testament, the cup is associated with wrath or judgment. Now, clearly here, you could say, well, Jesus is going to bear the judgment of the Father for our sins. 
Um, but also, I think it's referring to the suffering that Jesus will go through. And his suffering, as you'll see here, is in one way a very unique sacrificial service that James and John are not going to be called on to die for the sins of the world. That is unique to Christ's sacrificial service. And Jesus understands that because at the end of verse 38, he's very emphatic when he says that I am going to be baptized. Like, the, like I'm stating something that is unique only to me, to my work that will be accomplished on the cross. But at the same time, it's interesting that you go down to verse 45 and you see the uniqueness of Christ's sacrificial service because it says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a word that speaks of release as a result of payment. So James and John in no way are going to be a ransom for the sins of others. That is unique to Christ, which kind of sets in picture here the reason we should be devoted to serving is because of Christ, because of how Christ humbled himself and became a servant and a ransom for our sins. At the same time, we want to keep in mind that although Christ's sacrificial service is unique, one and only, that it is a service that is to be imitated by the followers of Christ. And we don't want to miss that in this text because clearly in verse 39, when James and John say, we can do this, Jesus says, Partly, you know what, you're right. You, you are going to suffer for my name. And we know that's lived out. The Apostle John was going to be martyred by King Herod in Acts. So we'll see that happen. Or excuse me, James will be martyred in Acts. Uh, but also as well, we know that John will go on. He will be at least exiled to the island of Patmos, where he will receive the revelation for uh, the book of Revelation. And we also know, and it's speculated, that he may have even died in exile, possibly in uh, a kind of a labor-type camp at Patmos. So both of these will bear, in a very serious way, the suffering for the cause of Christ. And so we want to make sure we understand that this, this cup and this baptism, this is the first time in Mark that the word baptism is used in a very metaphorical way, not for like water or anything like that, but for being identified with. As we identify ourselves with Christ, we are to be committed to serving. Serving one another in the name of Christ, taking the message to our world, uh, looking at ways and actions we can display the love of Christ. And so you notice in verses 42 through 44, Jesus calls the group together. And whenever in Mark you see where it says Jesus called them together in reference to the disciples, it's, it's always a moment for decisive teaching. And so what he wants to teach them is, these are the marks of Christian service. 
One, you, you're not like the world in how they're looking for prestige, honor, or credit. Uh, you're not seeking to lord it over others. You're, you're not using that position, that place, to manipulate or oppress others. And all we have to do is look at the news over the past year and think of how many situations have we read of people in positions of power and influence misusing that and serving it to just justify their own wants and needs. That is not to at all be a part of Christian service. But then Jesus even states it in a much stronger way as you get to verse 43 and 44. He says, if you're going to be great, you must become a servant. But then he goes even further and says, you need to be a slave to all. Two different words that Jesus uses. A servant is low. A slave is even lower than a servant. And Jesus strikes at the heart of their motivation that is misplaced here and what it means to serve Christ by serving others. Now, is it likely that Jesus would continue to need to repeat this to them? Absolutely. You get to the scene in the upper room before the Lord's Supper will be instituted. What does Jesus do? He washes their feet. And then he says to them, I've, I've shown you the full extent of my love. This is what you are to do to one another. One more lesson in let me show you what sacrificial service looks like. Motivated by your love for me, not a position, not any kind of assurance of, of some honor above others, but simply out of your love for me. That's a great idea that Dartmouth College wants to do this initiative. But leading that push to serve should always be the church. It should always be you and me as individual Christians. How will we serve God this week? How will we serve those people in our, in our workplace in a way that reflects our testimony for God? Because each and every Christian is called to humble ourselves, to serve one another in the body of Christ, and also to serve those in our world for the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are no different than James and John and the other ten who often lose sight of what service should look like as followers of Jesus Christ. And so may we keep this before us as we look ahead to the week that you have placed in front of us. That we would pray in the beginning of each day that we would be servants, that we would be observant of opportunities we have that we would not think of conversations with others as interruptions in our schedule, but that we would be open to your leading. There would be quick at times to drop everything to help a brother or sister in Christ in our church family uh, who is struggling or needs our assistance. Lord, may we serve one another as you have set us the ultimate example. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.